Al Jazeera Podcasts. Today, Israel reflects on an election while at war. There might be a silent protest in the polls. But most Israelis are not protesting to end the war. With election turnout low and apathy high, what are they protesting? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Almost five months after the attacks of October 7th and Israel's war on Gaza, Israelis went to the polls on Tuesday for municipal elections. In the first municipal election since 2018, voters are choosing town councillors and city mayors in dozens of Israeli municipalities. They were originally planned for October 31st, but postponed at the beginning of the war. And it's worth a reminder that Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip do not vote. Willem Marks is a freelance reporter for Al Jazeera in Jerusalem, and he spoke to many Israelis there before and after the vote. Willem, welcome to The Take. So you've been busy this week because Israelis went to the polls against the backdrop of some pretty major headlines surrounding the war. So before we talk about those elections, let's talk about those headlines. A ceasefire is being teased ahead of the weekend. Israel continues to threaten a potential ground invasion in Rafah, in the south of Gaza, where most of Gaza's displaced have fled. And on top of that, Israel's defense minister is threatening to expand the war into Lebanon, where Israeli strikes are landing. But these are not parliamentary elections. So were those issues that people were deciding their vote on? In a sense, it depends on who you ask. So as opposed to being parliamentary elections that allow a governing majority to be created in the Knesset, these were municipal elections. So when we went out and spoke to people in West Jerusalem, which is predominantly a Jewish part of the city, an official part of the state of Israel, as opposed to occupied East Jerusalem, which is predominantly inhabited by Palestinians, there was, as you might imagine, a variety of views from different people. People said the municipal elections were their chance to repudiate the current government. It was their chance to push forward for candidates that thought they might be able to help the city. It was a chance for them to focus on issues that really mattered, like construction in the area where they live. Discussions around where you can build, who can build, when you can build, often becomes very fraught and very political very quickly. There were people talking about essentially zoning. Hmm. Historically, Jerusalem has had a bit of a moratorium on tall buildings. And so people aren't that thrilled at the idea that a skyscraper might get built next to their three-story townhouse. Where I live in Arnona, they are planning to build like huge towers for housing. And we don't like that. And it's really affecting my atmosphere here. So some very practical concerns. We know that 7 million Israelis were eligible to vote, and that included tens of thousands who voted from active military duty in Gaza, 
or stationed on Israeli military bases. What do we know about who actually turned out? Turnout was lower than it had been during the last elections, which were in 2018. I think it dropped from around 56 or 57% to just below 50%, which was still higher than a lot of people frankly expected. This was a significant delay tied to the war. And although you rightly point out that even active duty personnel in the military were able to vote in places like Gaza, close to the Lebanese border, I think across 950 military polling stations, there were many people who belonged to communities close to the border with Gaza, the border with Lebanon, where rocket fire in particular has emptied out these communities. They were unable to vote. They'll be able to vote at a later date. And that therefore may have had an impact on that overall turnout number. Mm. What was the mood like? Did it feel like a typical election? They do care about their democracy here in Israel. And a number of people said, you know, it is a responsibility to vote. This is something I take seriously. I must vote. I mean, every vote counts, right? Some people don't have an option to vote. So if you have an option to vote, you should use it. But it wasn't that they were as excited by some of the issues around, say, trash collection as they might be around the release of captives inside Gaza. But in a city like Jerusalem in particular, what may start out as a local issue, something that local politicians deal with, can often turn into a national issue. And because of the situation in Israel, in the region, that can sometimes become globally significant as well. Mm. Well, Willem, some of the candidates were associated with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister's Likud party. And many of the headlines around these municipal elections were saying, there could be a referendum on Netanyahu's handling of the war. Well, if they were a referendum, and that's up for debate, then Likud, his party, did very well. Mm. In fact, candidates that either belonged to or affiliated to or were supported by Likud did very well indeed across the country. People I've spoken to have said, well, yeah, if they'd done really badly, maybe that would have been a significant indicator about his longevity, about his party's popularity. But it could be there's not such a clear correlation. This could just be that there were candidates tied to his party, Likud, who were just good candidates that offered local policies around the most mundane things, you know, road maintenance, trash collection, zoning, that appeal to people. And so it may just be that the historical correlation between municipal elections and general elections, which does exist here in Israel, whereby parties that don't do well in municipal elections don't do well in ensuing general elections, that correlation may be broken. Or it may be that that is what would happen in a general election. But it's really worth pointing out that in the national opinion polls, in the favorability ratings around Mr. Netanyahu, he is very, very, very much struggling. And so the success of Likud in these municipal elections, whether its own candidates or those tied to it, does not seem to reflect the national mood vis-a-vis Netanyahu and vis-a-vis his party Likud. Some of those candidates didn't seem to be eager for Netanyahu's support during the campaign. And what Netanyahu has been tied up with beyond the war is protests. So, Willem, in the months leading up to the election, 
we saw multiple protests taking place in Israel. And many of those were by the families of October 7th captives. They sometimes merged with anti-war protests and anti-government protesters. And they blame Netanyahu for the failure of security that led to October 7th, and they want him gone. Police crackdowns on those protests are becoming increasingly violent. But Netanyahu has a few reasons for wanting to hold on to his position, which include legal trouble. Can you tell me a little bit about why it would be important for him to stay in office? Well, just to deal with that concept of legal trouble, for those that maybe haven't followed this closely, this is the concept that once he's no longer in office, Mr. Netanyahu will be more readily liable for potentially criminal proceedings related to previous behavior, including during previous terms in office. Israel's attorney general has indicted the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, on multiple corruption charges. But of course, this is a man who's been at the top of Israeli politics for decades, let's not forget. So political ambition is no doubt one of the key drivers. This is the man who wants to stay in power for the sake of being in power, like many leaders around the world. This is the man that has potentially policies he wants to see enacted. This is a man who feels a responsibility potentially for what has happened under his watch and wants to be the person that potentially solves from his perspective what has happened, tries to confront the forces that have threatened Israel's security. This is a man who has made the security of Israel very much part of his persona. Um, it's been a part of his election campaigns for many, many years. And so the fact that this extraordinarily significant threat to Israel's security back on October 7th happened while he was in the chair, as it were, may be something that is driving him to stay in this position, to hold on to power in order to try and right the wrong, as he may see it. After the break, the alliances Netanyahu has made to stay in power and where they could go next. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. As Willem says, Benjamin Netanyahu is nothing if not a political survivor. And that's still the case today. And though his wartime government was not on the ballot, the cracks are showing. Over successive years, the fragmentation of Israeli party politics has meant that very often there are some surprising bedfellows when it comes to political parties that are in government. Netanyahu has been very adept historically at finding partners, bringing partners on board, and then retaining partners in order to maintain that governing majority. If members of his current governing coalition decide not to support him in parliamentary votes in particular, 
it would be difficult for him to hold on to power. Mm. Now, that may happen one day soon. It may happen a long time in the future. At this point, there's no way of really knowing. But he is a man that has successfully triangulated the ever-fraught world of Israeli politics for a long time. Meanwhile, there's anger amongst a segment of his allies, the ultra-Orthodox community. Because for the first time in the country's history, they may be drafted into the military. They don't want us to be Jewish, therefore we prefer to die and not go to the army. On Monday, Israel's High Court of Justice ordered the Netanyahu government to explain why they've been exempt. So how does this religious community support Netanyahu? So for that governing coalition that I mentioned earlier, in order for him to maintain a majority in the Knesset, the parliament here in Israel, he has allied himself with parties that represent many segments of that ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. And while the majority of Israeli citizens at some point are required to serve in the armed forces, historically that's not always been true for some members of the ultra-Orthodox community. And one of the reasons... Netanyahu's critics say, at least, that that's been the case is because he's been willing to bend over backwards in order to make that possible, in order to maintain relationships with politicians that represent those communities, in order for him to maintain power. So the idea that potentially his allies would have constituents being forced into a military they don't want to serve in for often religious reasons might make it very difficult for those already fraying relationships to survive. Ultra-Orthodox parties made some gains in this election. What do we know about the results so far? In the municipal elections, the party spearheaded by Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the current national security minister and the head of one of the parties that is part of the governing coalition, they did see some success. Ben-Gvir is a self-described disciple of extremist rabbi and former Knesset member Meir Kahane, who founded the Kach Party. Outlawed in 1994, its racist ideology still looms over Israeli politics today. And the national opinion polls that are better able to potentially predict voting intention today have said the same thing, that he would be likely to pick up seats for his party in the Knesset, whereas Netanyahu's Likud would likely see a cratering. Hmm. For our international listeners, how would you place these municipal elections and their results in the wider scheme of what we've seen since October 7th? The unprecedented Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's devastating war on Gaza in which 30,000 people have been killed. Where do these elections fall, and why do they matter? The elections do stand as a reminder that things have not been normal in Israel, in the sense that they have been postponed for many months since they were meant to take place at the end of October. And since there are many communities close to the border with Gaza, close to the border with Lebanon, who are not able to vote because they've been moved away from their homes, and the idea and indeed the imagery of Israeli soldiers at mobile polling booths inside Gaza in the middle of what is unquestionably a horrific war zone is, is very stark, very striking. 
In terms of their significance, though, for Hamas, clearly not interested. The various parties to negotiations, such as the US, such as the Egyptians, such as the Qataris, not that interested. But Netanyahu, potentially, there would have been a bit more of a cause for concern if the candidates in these local elections tied to his party had fared much more badly than they did. But frankly, I think going forward in the weeks and months ahead, this will be the least of the worries for the current Israeli government. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and Khalid Sultan, with Sonia Bagat, Ashish Balhotra, Chloe K. Lee, Veronisa Campana, Miranda Lynn, Nagin Oliayi, Sariel Khalili, David Enders, Zaina Bader, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.